grab a last cuppa, or actually you can grab a cup of tea whenever you want during this time, but that's, I, I won't be offended, I won't be distracted. Um, but it's, for those that don't know me, my name's Cameron Sparks. Uh, me and my wife, we have the privilege of leading the City South Gathering uh, down in Griffith. Uh, and my wife is actually incredible. She's at home with five sick kids right now, and I'm, I'm out here partying, so uh, it's, it's a good time. Uh, I do feel a little guilty, a little bit of shame, but nah, she, she's awesome, so she knows what she's doing. Um, but tonight, we're just going to dive straight into it as we continue the How Not to Read the Bible series. Um, and I actually just want to share a quote real quick, if we can throw that up, uh, by Richard Dawkins. Some of you guys may know this quote, some of you may not. I actually don't know some of the words in here, so I'm not going to read the whole quote because I'm going to just butcher some of these words. But, but as we start tonight, I'm just going to read this. It says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character of all, in all fiction. Uh, he's jealous, he's proud of it, pity, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, uh, you, you know, ethnic cleanser, which is a wild accusation, homophobic, racist, uh, genocidal, uh, a bunch of words I can't uh, say, and then, uh, and then bully. So we'll end on that one. And so it's a wild claim. And you've got another guy uh, by the name of Richard Robert, sorry, Robert Wilson, and he writes that the Bible tells Christians to be like Christ or to be like God, and then page after page, it describes God as a mass murderer. And there's a lot of guys like this, a lot of atheists like Richard and Robert, who argue that the God of the Bible is a God of violence. And are they correct? Are they correct in their criticism? When they make these claims, is this a correct claim? But what does it mean for God to be pro-violence? And it basically means that uh, he is in favor of violence. When there's a choice between another option, he picks violence every time. First go, let's go. And, uh, and so this is, is this an accurate description of who God is? So when we, we look at the Bible, when we look at Scripture, is this what we're seeing? Are we seeing God as someone that is in favor of violence? When there's an option between maybe peace or another thing, his first go or his first option is violence. And so this is going to be our topic today, is uh, whether or not God is pro-violence. And we're going to get into some pretty uncomfortable verses. We're going, to challenge, we're going to come up against some stuff that's probably going to make us sweat a little bit, probably going to make us a bit squeamish at times, but it is necessary and we need to do it. Uh, and I'll explain why we need to do it in a moment. But before we do, I just want to pray real quick. Man, these, I don't know what to do with these chords. Um, God, we, we just thank you so much for tonight. Thank you that we actually come together as a community to worship you, to praise you for who you are, that, that even we, when we're confronted with some really challenging topics or challenging aspects in Scripture, Lord, that we can trust you. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to see who you really are, the character that you, that you portray in Scripture, Lord, and that at the end of the day that we can actually grow closer to you and closer as a community, that we can confront these things head on and not run away from them, Lord that we don't shy away from the challenge, but we embrace it, Lord, as we know that you are someone that we can trust. We know that you are someone that we can lean to and, and that even when we don't know all the answers, we can still trust you. I just pray that you continue to bless the City PM community uh, so that they can also be a blessing in the world around them, whether it's work, whether it's uni, whether it's family, whatever's going on, Lord. Amen. Amen. So... Uh, just bear with me for a second, because there's a bit of method to my madness. But when I was, um, when I was growing up, I got into a lot of fights. Uh, and the reason was, is because my mom told me that if anyone ever hits you, you can hit them back. Just hit them back. 
And so the result was a lot of fights. Now, if that's all I told you, what would your conclusion be? Would it be that uh, maybe Cameron's mom doesn't have the best advice? And you can think that, that's okay. I thought that a lot when I was growing up. Um, but would that be, would your conclusion maybe be, oh, Cameron's mom's pro-violence. She's all for it. She, she's okay with Cameron getting into fights. But what if I told you there's actually more to the story? What if I told you that when I was growing up, specifically through like primary school, early high school, I actually got bullied a lot. And, uh, and it was pretty bad. And there was, there was times where I'd come home in tears. There was times where I'd beg my mom not to go to school. In fact, there's one moment in particular I remember so distinctly was I was on my bed crying, begging my mom to die because I just didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to live anymore. And it was because I was getting picked on. I was getting made fun of. I was getting pushed around. I was getting beat up on. In fact, one day, it was so bad, I came home with bruises all over my neck. My mom took photos. Bruises all over my neck because I got strangled so badly. And unfortunately, the school wasn't doing too much about it. Um, and so my parents got sick of it, so they went to the police. And they, well, they first threatened the school that they're going to go to the police. And then they went to the police. And there was all this back and forth. And we're not talking like a week. We're talking a couple of years this was going on for. And, um, and eventually, my mom got sick of it. She got sick of the fact that the school wasn't doing too much about it. She got sick of the fact that the police weren't doing too much about it. And that's when she sat me down and said, Cameron, if anyone ever hits you, I give permission to defend yourself. And if that means you've got to hit them back, then hit them back. So with that information, with that bigger story, that broader story, if your conclusion was at the start, yeah, Cameron's mom's a bit wild, is your conclusion a bit different now? It's like, oh, actually, maybe Cameron's mom's not so much pro-violence as originally thought. And I share this story to, uh, to illustrate the fact that when we get the broader picture, when we get the wider story, we often then come to understand that sometimes certain actions, sometimes certain choices um, have different motivations and those motivations are actually justified. And we can look back and go, okay, I can see why that happened and I can see why that was even the last resort and then it became necessary. Because what happened was the bullying stopped. It stopped. They very quickly realized that they also don't like getting punched and so it solved the problem. It solved the problem. But even if, uh, let's jump to another one real quick, another illustration to kind of drive the point home just for a moment. No one, oh, I don't know, no one that I've chatted to on this particular topic when it comes to school shootings has ever like told me that it was wrong for the school shooter to get shot themselves. Like this person's just gone through a school, killed a bunch of kids, killed a bunch of teachers, and then unfortunately, well, it depends on your view, they get shot themselves. And the police have come in or whatever's gone on, they've come in and they've had to stop the mass shooting. And no one sits back and goes, damn, that guy shouldn't have got shot. Like no one's going, oh, the mass shooter, how unjustified was the fact that they got killed. And what I find fascinating is that when the police are doing what they're doing, when they're, in, they're going into that school to protect the kids, they actually have to tell the shooter. They have to actually give the shooter time to surrender. So even after they've just massacred all these people, they've shot up the school, the police still have to give them a moment to surrender. And it's actually in their lack of surrendering, in their choice to not surrender, is what eventually produces the final outcome. And I say this to illustrate the point that there's different motivations. The motivation of the shooter and the motivation of the police are completely different. One is to wreak havoc, create evil, to, to destroy life, and one is to protect life. One is to protect the innocence, and one is to bring about justice even at some points. And so when we look at this topic of whether or not God is pro-violence, 
I want us to look, um, I want to look further or deeper than just what you might come across sometimes online, which is just some catchy quotes or some ridiculous memes or some surface level criticism that a lot of these guys are doing because um, they're just trying to uh, cherry pick scriptures and handle them inappropriately. And we're going to, and the reality is when we, we come to the Bible, especially if you start in Genesis and you work your way forward, you're going to be confronted with some really heavy stuff straight off the bat. It's going to be really challenging. You are going to come across some things that are going to be uncomfortable. But my encouragement is just because we encounter challenging topics that we can't explain straight away. Maybe it's really difficult to understand what's going on here. Maybe there's certain things in language or context or genre that we're not understanding. Let's not just throw out the Bible. Let's just go, ah, oh, too hard. I'm done with this. Bye. Like, no one, well, I don't know. No one normally does this. You know, the scientist doesn't throw out science just because they can't explain something in the natural world. They keep digging. They keep looking for an explanation. Um, in your workplace, you don't just stop working, or maybe some of you do, especially if you're in the public service. I don't know. But <laughs> when it gets too hard and then you're just like, nah, I'm done with this. I'm going to just not work. Or maybe, I don't know. I don't hear some great things about the public sector. But, may, but you shouldn't. I, well, I'm saying you shouldn't. You should keep going. You should keep digging. You should keep asking questions. But if your motivation is just for money, I get why you're doing it. But... So when it comes to a topic like this, when it comes to the topic of pro-violence in the Bible, let's not just throw it out because we can't explain what's going on. Or even when you get hit with some questions, don't just be like, oh, maybe they're right, just because we can't explain what's going on. And so to help us when it comes to this topic, I want to highlight three approaches that we actually want to avoid. So these three approaches, we don't want to do these because they're not good, and I'll explain why in a second. The first approach that we don't want to do is to simply state that God is God. What this means or what this um, approach often looks like is saying, well, God can do whatever he wants. So if he wants to kill people, if he wants to tell people just to get killed or die or kill babies, that's okay because God is God and he can do what he wants. He can do what he wants. And there is a tension in this because technically speaking, God is God and God can to some degree do whatever he wants. He is sovereign and he is all-powerful, and that doesn't change whether we like him or not or whether we believe in him or not. But it actually is so unhelpful in the discussion. There's actually a lot of Christians, who are a lot of people that don't want to be Christians because of this, or they've turned away from potentially following God because when they've come to people that they know believe in God and they go, hey, what do we do with these hard-hitting texts? We just hit them with the, well, God is God. He can do what he wants. And it's not helpful. Even though there's truth in it, it's not helpful. The next one is to state that the Bible is wrong. And I know here at City PM, no one would ever do this. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know all of you, so maybe you would. But the, the second one is the, to state that the Bible is wrong. And this basically view kind of says like, oh, well, you know, God didn't do any of the violence. He didn't order any of it. It was actually the Israelites that got it wrong. They were mistaken. They messed up. And the reason we want to avoid this approach is because it says that ultimately what it's saying is that Moses didn't hear from God. Some of the prophets, some of the judges, some of the kings, they didn't hear from God. And we don't want to do that. And Jesus didn't even read the Old Testament this way. And Christians haven't read the Old Testament this way for the last 2,000 years. What we're facing is actually quite new um, on a mass level of how we approach the Bible. And the third one, uh, third approach that we want to avoid, and this is quite common, is to kind of, and I've just labeled this different gods, is to, is to go about different gods. What we sometimes do is we make the God of the Old Testament out to be really angry, really wrathful, not a nice guy, 
like Richard Dawkins said, um, uh, a bully. And then we come to the New Testament and we're like, yeah, God's so loving. He's so kind. He's so patient. He's so gentle. But the prob- there's a massive problem with this because the, bi- the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. And so we don't want to make this mistake because God is the same yesterday, today, uh, and forever. And so the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. And so when we speak about God, let's not get confused or not let's conflate some different views about what's happening in the Old or the New. Because Jesus himself uh, affirms the Old Testament to be inspired by God and to pit the New against the Old would create so many problems. It actually creates a heap of problems. And I think sometimes we do this because we're trying to solve problems but it actually creates so many more problems. So let's not do this. It's the same God. And so, yeah, so let's avoid these approaches because they're, they're not helpful, especially in conversations um, with non-believers, but they're also unbiblical in the grand scheme of things. They're just not the way that we should be handling tough topics. And then I have one crucial, like, foundation point, um, and this is from Exodus 34, uh, 5 to 7, and I'll read it out in a second. But this is a... This is, if we want to know God's character, this is, what, this is what we should be turning to. This is the foundation of everything that we should be doing. When it comes to uh, Scripture, this is a foundation that we should be looking at the grand story of the Bible, uh, and then more specifically, even on this topic. And so Exodus uh, 34, 5-7 says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and He stood there with him and compl- uh, proclaimed His name, the Lord. And He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abiding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And so when we read the Bible as a whole unified narrative, we see these statements about God time and time again. We see that He is loving time and time again, that He forgives time and time again, that He is slow to anger and man, He is slow to anger. And we'll get to, to how slow he can be at times. And he gives so many opportunities to Israel and other nations to repent time and time again. And so when we come to the difficult passages in the Old Testament, we need to come from this foundation. We need to come from this lens or this opinion or this approach, whatever word you want to throw in there. That's, where, that's our beginning or starting block. And so I guess the question then becomes, how do we approach the passages in the Bible that contain violence. And uh, it's actually quite easy, so we'll have some fun tonight. But we need to keep in mind context, we need to keep in mind genre, we need to keep in mind certain aspects of language. We want to avoid cherry-picking. Most of the criticism that you'll come across is just simple cherry-picking, so taking a verse completely out of context and going, look how bad God is. And again, we're going to look at some really difficult and uncomfortable texts in Scripture. And the reality is, God does do a lot of uncomfortable things that actually must be done in a world full of sin. Like, we have to keep in mind that we're a bunch of sinners, the world's a bunch of sinners, we're broken, and we have a lot of issues, and we do a lot of bad things. And the fact is that God actually never intended us to be comfortable with sin. We shouldn't be comfortable with sin. And so when we see it outplay in Scripture, we should be uncomfortable. We should be bothered by the effects of sin, and we should... We should be uncomfortable when we even see moments of punishment and correction. Because God uses imperfect people through imperfect means. And so, let's get into it. So the first main point of how not to read the Bible is that we need to understand that the Bible is a narrative of humanity. 
the Bible is a narrative of humanity. So what this basically means is, is there's a two voices in play in Scripture. The first one is God's, and we'll get to that in a second, but the, the other one is um, human, like humanity or whoever's writing at the time, whatever's going on at the time, the, the human's voice at that moment. And it's important to note this because when we look at the topic of whether or not God is pro-violence, um, is that a lot of the passages that we encounter are actually not a representation and reflection of God. They're, just, they're simply not a reflection, uh, representation of God. In fact, a lot of the time is a representation and reflection of us and how broken we can be and how cruel we can be. Because the Bible is full of passages that contain violence, but it doesn't mean it promotes it or endorses it. And we also need to remember that the Bible is a library, not a single book. And so when, it, when we look at certain stuff, there's genres at play, and this, this will change how we approach um, certain aspects of what we're reading. And since the Bible is a narrative of humanity, some of the uh, violent events described in the Bible are simply just historical accounts of what happened. And they're just reflecting the realities of the time. And I don't know if you know some of the realities of the time, but we're talking like Bronze Age civilization. So if you research of anything to do with Bronze Age civilization, it is rough. They don't have aircon, which you guys just recently got, but they don't have aircon. Right? So you guys might have been a bit closer to them than we down at City South. But it is brutal, like straight up brutal. These guys are fighting for their lives. It's survival of the fittest. And the reality is if you didn't know how to fight, if you didn't know how to defend yourself, and even at times if you didn't know how to attack, you were guaranteeing your death. And not even guaranteeing your death, guaranteeing the death of your friends, of your family, of your loved one. You're guaranteeing the fact that another tribe or another nation could come and kill your men, take, them, take the rest off into slavery, come and kill your woman and rape the rest of them and destroy and just decimate your land and kill your babies. That's what you're guaranteeing. And this is the reality that I think most of us are not, we, we just will never experience that. We don't know what that's like. And I pray that I will never have to make a decision between taking life and defending life. And I pray that no one kicks down my door and tries to hurt my kids because I, I'm a pacifist at heart, but you come for my kids, I will mess you up. Like, I just know it's, gonna, it's just going to come out of me. So, but I don't want to because I do believe that we should abstain from violence. But it's a reality we just don't know. And so that's what we got to understand. And sometimes the violence that we see is simply a description of a response to what is actually happening in the world. And to illustrate this point, I want us to turn to Psalm 137. So you got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 137, but I want to pinpoint one verse before we read the whole chunk. So Psalm 137. Don't be distracted by what's up there right now. Well, you probably already are because you've seen it. But I'll give you a moment just to turn to Psalm 137 if you want. All right, let's just read verse 9. Uh, and just before we do it, I want you to kind of come at this approach. Let's, let's just assume you don't know, you know nothing about God. Maybe you, uh, you know that the Bible is kind of some sacred text of Christianity and Christians love to talk about it a lot um, and that they think it's from God. And let's say, out of nowhere, you, this is the first verse you read or someone shows you this verse to say why you shouldn't be a Christian. What are you guys thinking is going on here? It says, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, if that's all you read, what, your, what would your conclusion be? What would your thinking be regarding God's character or nature? 
you're probably going, oh, maybe he's pro-violence. You're probably going, he's, he gets pretty happy when babies die. If that's all you read, that's probably what you're thinking. But let's read the entire passage, um, well, the entire psalm, and let's see what we think at the end. But let's keep in mind that this is a song or a poem, and we often pour a lot of emotion into poems and a lot of emotion into songs, and we use a lot of descriptive language in these moments that often aren't um, exactly true or aren't exact speaking facts at times. So Psalm 137, let's go. So verse 1, it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept and we remembered Zion. There on the pillars we hung our hearts. For there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof uh, roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundation. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Now verse 9. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So now that we haven't cherry-picked just one verse out of, pas- out of its context or out of its passage, what would your thoughts be now? You're like, oh, this, this is pretty crazy. What's going on here? Like, what would, what would you be concluding about God now? Does anyone want to throw out any answers? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. What if I told you there was a to the story, though? What if I told you that this psalm actually comes out of time of brokenness and out of time of hurt? What's actually happened is that Jerusalem got conquered by the Babylonians, and they came in and they just messed them up. And what most likely happened is they most likely killed all the children from um, 12 down, and they would have killed all the elderly, and then they would have taken the woman off to be used in ways that are just unspeakable. They would have killed a lot of the strong men, and then they would have taken the rest uh, and used them for slavery. And so right here, right now, oh, and on top of that, they probably would have, they, what we see here in verse 9, they probably would have done that to their kids, and they would have made them watch. They would have made them, them watch their babies being killed this way. And so what we have on one hand from the psalmist is him crying out for revenge. And there's an element where I can kind of like relate. I've got five kids. If that happened to me, I would want revenge. So he's crying out for revenge. But on the other hand, we have this moment of just like grief and lamenting and anguish over what's just happened to them. And so if you have been raised on like nonviolent teaching, especially out of the New Testament, this does seem unusually hard. It does seem unusually um, or does seem unloving. But it's not showing us that God's pro-violence. And there's a real, real simple answer here. At no point is the psalmist claiming this is from God. It is just expressing their emotions or expressing the pain that they've gone through. And what I love about this is that it shows that there is no amount of human emotion that we cannot bring to God. We can bring it all. So in our, the hardest moments of our life, we should be turning to God. And it doesn't mean he's going to listen to if we're crying out for revenge, because we, to note, it doesn't come. But we should be going to him. But what it does reflect, it reflects how broken humanity can be. It reflects how cruel humanity can be to one another. And we don't have to look too far, even Western history, to realize we, we ain't that much different. We have done some messed up things. So, yeah, reflection of humanity. 
The next point is that the Bible is a narrative of God. And so this is when we get into some of the hard-hitting verses and passages where it is God commanding violence, it is God commanding war, it is God commanding uh, the Israelites to go into battle. So I want to throw up the first one real quick, which is 1 Samuel uh, uh, 15, 2 to 3. Um, and it says this, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And then verse 3 jumps real quick and it goes, Now go and attack the Amalites or the Amalekites and destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, and infants. And then if we jump to Deuteronomy 7, 16, it says, You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look at them with pity and do not serve their gods, for they will snare you. So, like, you can't get more clear than this. Like, it's going, this is what the Lord says, this is what God says. We don't want to do the, that one of the approaches, well, they got it wrong. We want to avoid that one. So, what are we going to do here? Well, we can actually answer this by looking at genre, and we can answer this by looking at um, the context of what's going on, and we can answer it by having some fun with some language, looking at what's going on through some of the language they're using. So, if we look at genre for a second, well, Deuteronomy is in the first five books of the Bible, and so it, it falls into the law um, genres. It falls into the law category. And what this basically means is this is God-inspired instructions. So we can't get away from that. This is God telling the Israelites, this is what you must do. This is how you must behave. This is what you got to do when you go into the promised land. So we, we can't get around that. Then, the, then if we look at 1 Samuel, for example, Samuel falls into the historical genre. And so this is when they, they go into the promised land and this is them outworking the law. This is them outworking the instructions that God has given them. And this is them in the promised land trying to figure out what the heck they're doing and how they're meant to do and how they're meant to live um, as a people different from the rest of the nations. Um, so that's, that's the genre. Then the context. So let's have a look at the context. Does anyone know uh, any Canaanite history real quick? No, no one studied it. No one majored in it. Uh, real quick, anyone? No one? Oh man, they're slacking at school. No, I didn't even know. I had to look it up. <laughs> um, but the reason, the reason why God orders the Israelites to go into the promised land is to, to get rid of the Canaanites is actually to bring about justice. It's an act of justice. See, on the surface level, or if we just cherry pick some verses, we'll go, oh, it's, it's ethnic cleansing or it's mass murdering or whatever Richard Dawkins thinks. But there's more to it. See, the Canaanites are wicked people. And if we continue reading Deuteronomy, if we go to Deuteronomy 9.4, for example, we find out that the, God gives his motivation. He gives his reasoning. It's because the, the Canaanites are wicked people. If we go to Deuteronomy 18.12-13, he says the same thing. I want you to go in and, and push them out and drive them out because of their wickedness, because of their sinfulness. And if we look at uh, Leviticus 18.24-25, it's the same thing. So he's wanting them to go in to push them out or to attack them because of their wickedness. And so the question that we have to ask is, what made them so wicked? What were they doing that was so bad? So first up, they were engaged in prostitution. Um, and then it was also common practice for parents to give up their children to the priests or to the temple for the children to be used in prostitution, right? On top of that, they would also give up their children for child sacrifices, so they'll, they'll willingly give their children over for child sacrifices. So that's pretty bad. They'll also be engaged uh, quite regularly in bestiality, incest, rape, murder, slavery, stealing. Like if you made a list of every dodgy thing you could think of, um, they were most likely doing it, uh, except for tax evasion. But anyway, um, but they were doing it. 
But one aspect that I want to draw, and I only say that because we're at the end of the financial year, but, um, but, the, <laughs> but the one thing I want to draw closer attention to is uh, child sacrifices. And I want to throw up this picture. Uh, I want you guys to have a look at this picture. Hopefully, we can get it going. So this picture, um, this is so much better quality than anywhere else that we've thrown this picture up. So what you can see is there's a statue. There's a, most likely a dude who's a priest and there's a baby. You got a fire under the statue and then you got some drums at the bottom right corner. So what's going on here is they would have this big massive statue that was meant to represent most likely Molech, maybe at times Baal even. Um, and they would have this massive furnace under it and they would heat this guy up, they'll heat it up. And so some, depending on who you read or depending on what you read, it might have like an opening in its chest um, or it'd have this big bowl. So just picture like a massive frying pan, if you would. And what they would do is they would take babies and they would place them on there to be burnt alive in worship. And it breaks my heart every time because I have kids and it just kills me to, to read this. And, and when I was researching, I teared up every single time. Because it's just outrageous. It's just wild. And what, make, what makes things even more wild is that the mothers were reluctant to do it. Like, shockingly, I don't know why, but they were reluctant to do it. And so they learned that they needed to place drums, right, to, to play it as loud as they can so they could drown out the cries of the babies so the mothers will give over their children more willingly. Like, this is what's going on here. This is what the Canaanite tribes were doing and surrounding nations were doing. And if we just think about that for a second, like that's pretty crazy. Like it's, it's heavy stuff. And I guess the question then is, was it wrong for God to bring about a judgment on the Canaanite people and the surrounding nations because of what they were doing? Was it wrong for God to, to seek justice? Because I find it so interesting that the people that say, why doesn't God stop all the evil in the world? Are this, is the same people that look at this, look at what God's doing in the Old Testament and go, wow, God is so evil. Like it doesn't make any sense. He's, he's actually trying to bring about justice and you just, you can't see it. And this is when we need to understand how God is actually really slow to anger. Because these practices... Like, God didn't just wake up one day, not that he probably wakes up, but he didn't wake up one day and go, ah, it's time. Like, you know, you messed up yesterday. I'm not in a good mood today. Judgment. No. He warns the nations beforehand, and he is slow to anger. Because, and just how slow? He's about 400 years slow. He gave the Canaanite people 400 years to repent. They were doing these practices for 400 years. Like, I don't even, I can't even comprehend that. 400 years they were doing this. And that's how long God gave them to repent and to turn from their wickedness. And they didn't. And they didn't. You know, just like the police officers when they're trying to stop a mass shooting, they warn the shooter to surrender. And it's only because they don't they get shot. It's only because the nations don't repent they face judgment. And God dishes out justice if you would have it that way. And we have to remember that God is a holy and righteous judge and he is patient and merciful and gracious. And if we take, uh, if we take uh, Jonah and the Ninevites for a second, this is a great example of when a nation who is wicked, most likely doing similar things, they repent of their wickedness, they turn to God and God forgives them and, uh, and has, shows them grace and mercy. 
And it's, it's actually funny because Jonah's the one that's like, nah, that was messed up. You shouldn't have forgiven them. And then he's uh, unhappy about it all. And you know, I can kind of relate to Jonah because I, I struggle. It's like 400 years of this, like it's pretty brutal stuff. It is pretty brutal stuff. But, they, but the Ninevites repented and they didn't face God's judgment. So that's the context. Then the next thing is language. We have to look at language and we have, to, and this also involves a little bit of context, but when we go back to Deuteronomy uh, 7.16, we, we get this statement which says, you must destroy all the peoples. I don't know if we can throw up Deuteronomy 16 again, if that's real cool, just so you can see it. Yeah, you must destroy all the peoples. You must destroy all the peoples. So if we just looked again, if we just cherry picked and we just looked at this verse, you'd probably conclude that God is pro-violence. Or, you know, he's down for mass killings or whatever's going on. But if we look at the whole passage, we realize there's more to the story than what's going on. If we look at Deuteronomy 7, 3, God instructs them, Israelites, he instructs the Israelites to not marry the tribes in, or the tribes of Canaan or the surrounding tribes. Well, that's a really interesting instruction if you just told them a couple of verses later to destroy them. It makes the first instruction obsolete. It doesn't need to be there. And if we go, if we keep reading and we go to Deuteronomy 7, 17, we see this statement. It says, we need, it's a driving out. It's God is going to drive out the Canaanite tribes from the promised land. It's a pushing out. It's a, yeah, get out of here. I don't know, just go, right? And so what a lot of people like to do is they like to take this, you must destroy all peoples and then present God as a mass murderer. So what's actually going on here? Well, this destroy them all language just from looking at a bit of context, we realize, oh, something's not adding up here. And what some incredible people have done who I'm so thankful for them because I could not be bothered. They've gone out and they've studied this stuff and they've looked at language and they've looked at all these historical data. And what they've come to find is that this kind of language is an exaggeration or we would understand it as like hyperbolic language or it could even be come down as like um, metaphoric, but it's actually a use of military or war type literature. And we know this because it was actually quite common in that time. The Israelites were using this kind of language, but so were all the other nations. They would be using this language of like, yeah, destroy them all, annihilate them all. And the best way that we can actually understand this is when we look at sports teams, for example, which is really random, but just hear me out for a second. Sports teams, especially when it comes to the grand final, right? We're a big match. You'll hear the captain or you'll hear the coach, especially in their like pump up, you know, we're going to go out there, we're going to crush them. We're going to go out there, we're going to destroy them all. We're going to go out there and we're going to annihilate them. We're going to pound them into the ground. And if we took them literally, we're like, really, you're going to go out and crush them? Like, what are you putting, a bunch of bricks on them? Like, what's going on? You're shoving them in a compactor and then crushing them. Like, what's going on here? And I think all of us, especially if we come from sporting backgrounds or some kind of competitive backgrounds, we straight away know what they mean. We know that when they say, we're going to crush them, they're just saying, we're going to go out and beat them. And so when the Israelites are like, hey, we're going to go out and we're going to destroy all the peoples, it is just a representation or it's a language of we're going to go out and we're going to beat the evil. We're going to beat the evil that's expressed in the Canaanite culture. That's what's going on here. And a huge point to note as well on this is that Rahab, if you guys know the story of Rahab, she was a Canaanite and she repented and she gets saved. And so when people claim that God is an ethnic cleanser or anything like that, if the goal was ethnic cleansing, even if Rahab repented, they would have killed her. But that's not the goal. That's not what's going on here. God is slow to anger. 
and he forgives those who repent. And so what we know, what we can see is that the God of the Bible is not a racist, doesn't practice ethnic cleansing, and he gives everyone a chance to repent. But it's just that war-type literature. It's that like exaggeration, that hyperbolic language. And we use it today, and we all understand what's going on. It's the same thing. So it's no biggie. Well, maybe it is, I don't know. But I don't think it's a biggie. And so when we come to these hard passages where God is instructing war, instructing violence, we begin to realize that there's actually more to the story. We begin to realize that it's not about just killing people or hurting people, but it's actually the motivation's different. The motivation is about trying to bring about justice, bring about justice and, and to correct wicked behavior. And we did this, surprise, we figured this out together. We did this by looking at genre, we did this by looking at the context, and we did this by paying attention to the language and what's going on in the passage. But I want to end on this note, Jesus, because it's a pretty good note to end on. Um, the Bible is a unified story that points to Christ. The Old Testament shows us graphically that our world is broken. It's straight up. It shows how bad we can be. And it also shows us that we can't fix the problem because the problem is us. And it's not so much about who we are, but it's about how we are. We are broken. But it is God who provided an answer. It is God who provided a solution. It is God who has fixed or provided a way to be fixed. And he did that through Jesus. See, Jesus came and he died and he took on our sin or he became sinner for us so that we could come and be in relationship with God. It was God that saw the problem and he was like, you guys can't figure it out, so I'm gonna take one for the team. I'm gonna figure this one out for you. But there is also hope. See, humanity is gonna come to an end and Jesus is gonna return. And he's going to return and there's going to be a new creation. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. And it's going to be a time where God is going to dwell with those that have received forgiveness, those that have repented. And it's going to be a pretty cool time. I'm actually really pumped because I'm kind of sick of the world at the moment. There's a lot of messed up stuff happening. But there's going to be a time of judgment. Jesus is going to judge there's going to be a time of judgment. And when we read Revelations, we find that it is going to be such a holy and righteous and good judgment that He is rendering on people that we are going to worship Him for it and we're going to be thankful for it because it's going to be righteous and pure and holy. My encouragement is that the Bible does have violence, but the ultimate story is about grace and that it does not present God as pro-violence but it presents him as one that shows incredible grace, incredible mercy, incredible forgiveness, and is slow to anger. And we need to be thankful for that. And this is actually the message we need to share. When people ask us about the violence in the Bible, this is my encouragement, that the story is much bigger and much better than just simply some blood and guts. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for the city south. Oh. Yeah, and the City South community. You know what? I wasn't there today. We thank you so much for the City South community. They're my people. I love them. Bless them. But we also pray for the City, uh, city PM people, Lord. We just thank you for your provision of a new building. We thank you for the excitement of that, Lord. As, as many people that have been here from, the, from early days know how it's been a long journey. And we've made it work. And they've made it work. And so, God, we just thank you so much for their perseverance. We thank you so much for their commitment. And Lord, we just pray that you continue to help them in everything that they do. Bless them so they can be a blessing. And God, we just pray 
that you help them when it comes to tough topics, whether it's this one or whether it's something else, Lord. Help them listen to you, help them follow you, help them to be obedient to you, and help them have some patience and kindness when people come with questions, Lord. Let's not just run away, lots is high, but let's run towards them. And let's be honest. If we don't know, be honest with it. And God, I just want to thank you. Thank you for your character. I want to thank you that you're slow to anger because it means when I mess up, you're slow to anger. And it means when someone else in this, this group, Lord, messes up, you're slow to anger. And we just want to thank you for that. We love you and we live for you. Amen. Amen. So I got it. I can hang around if you've got some questions. I only really scratched the, the tip of the iceberg on this one. Guys have written books about this. Uh, if you, the whole series that we based it off is this book, How Not to Read the Bible. I would encourage you to go read it. There's another guy who's written so much on this particular topic, and the book's called Is God a Moral Monster? I encourage you, get your hands on that copy if you haven't. Uh, it's a really good book, actually. Dan Kimball, the guy that wrote this book, got a lot of his stuff from that book. So win-win. Um, but I also know that um, Murray is an expert on this. And so if you've got any questions, you can ask Murray. Nah, 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 nah. But no, seriously, come with your questions like this, and, and so that we can wrestle with it together. Uh, and don't shy away if you've got any questions or you've got any um, concerns because there is a lot that I didn't cover. And so I know you might have some questions or I know you might be like, what about this verse? Or what about that verse? That's okay. I know I haven't answered it all but we can do it together as a community. So thank you for having me. Not that you had a choice. It always feels awkward saying that because most of you don't know me and I just turned up. But thank you for having me. It's always a privilege and always a pleasure. Um, thanks. <laughs>